0: What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's
1: tablet. I like
2: reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our
0: host, Rachel Wada. Let's chat today a little bit about listening comprehension. This is a skill, just like reading comprehension, that is an essential part of literacy. When we read, we need to understand the words by processing them through our brains to make meaning from the text. When we listen to oral communication, we do the same thing. We must understand the words and make meaning from them. While many of us may understand the complex processes that go into reading comprehension, we often may not realize the process is just as complex when it comes to listening comprehension. But just think if you were to go to a country where you don't know the language and everyone around you was talking to you, you would have a very low level of listening comprehension because you would not know the words in that language. So with just a little thought, it is easy to see that listening comprehension is a complex and very essential skill. In fact, you are all engaging in this essential skill right now as you listen to me. But the question is, how can we help and support our children to develop their own listening comprehension skills? From the outset, I will say there are some disabilities that impact listening comprehension, and these are not what I am addressing. If you feel your child struggles with listening that may indicate a disability, there is professional help available for support and treatment. However, for children without such challenges, one of the best things that concerned adults can do is to play simple games. Childhood favorites like telephone, where one person says something in someone's ear and then passes it down the line, or others like red light, green light, where children move only when the director says green light, are great ways to start developing listening comprehension. As kids grow, one of the best ways to help them develop listening comprehension is to have them listen to audiobooks or other educational CDs with lots of talking. There are also lots of fine apps out there that adults can track down that are designed to develop listening comprehension. But even with all these great resources, one of the best things you can do to help kids develop listening comprehension is to talk to them. Conversations with concerned adults about things they really care about are some of the best ways to get kids listening. Because here at Rachel's World, we certainly believe that developing literacies is sometimes just about doing simple things, like talking to each other.
2: Of all the worlds awaiting our youth, dangerous worlds can pack the biggest wallop. Dangerous settings in fiction abound because they make compelling stories. But just how dangerous should they be? BYU English professor John Austinson talks to Rachel today on World's Awaiting about the popularity of fictional worlds of peril, dystopia, and apocalypse. John specializes in literature for teens and young adults. He's taught junior high and high school English and presently teaches courses in adolescent literature and publishes on the topic. Here's Rachel and John Austinson.
0: We're here today talking with John about young adult books.
1: It's great, thank you. It,
0: it's an exciting topic. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. One of the things that I think most people, when they look at the world of young adult literature, is they see these trends. Yeah. They see these large groups of publishing and books coming out with this, you know, the same genre of the same style. So, talk a little bit about what are some of the trends that you you see in young adult literature today?
1: Oh man, there's so many. I, you know, this is. This is a little different answer maybe, but one of the one of the trends that I'm excited about is how how popular young adult literature is. I think that's a great trend. But um I think you're also talking about maybe some trends we see in genres and, and content. And certainly thanks to Suzanne Collins and the Hunger Games, dystopian literature is really big right now. I think uh every Every time I think paranormal romance has kind of dwindled there'll be another sort of hit series or hit book that comes out and you know uh, that's a trend I think a, a real a very interesting trend we're seeing is nonfiction in young adult literature and I personally am very excited about this because I first of all love nonfiction myself, but i didn't always love it. But as an adult reader, I have come to really love nonfiction, and I'm so excited about what we see coming out in terms of nonfiction.
0: I love that. <laughs> That's great. But, you know, the the thing with trends, I think, particularly in young adult literature, is a lot of people kind of poo-poo them and they say, oh, sure. it's a trend. Oh, this is another dystopian book. So how do you see that? Do you see that as kind of connected, that trends and popularity are an important Part of what young adult literature is or the audience that it's connected to that it's an important thing for that particular audience
1: um, yeah i I think that well first of all popularity doesn't necessarily equal bad right it's it's an easy trap for us to fall into but and and some of this certainly comes about because of of marketing and and, and publishing's an industry it needs to make money so if the hunger games makes money then when we get some manuscripts that are dystopian let's try them out but one of the things i think is really interesting about these trends is that they they develop some complexities in our understanding of say dystopia or even paranormal romance which i think captures some of the magic of first love and some of this surreal feeling of especially for a young person of Finally, being in love for the first time. And, but you know, I, So I think that when we see all these dystopian novels, for instance, we're really seeing writers playing around with what is dystopia and what are some different ways we can twist it. I don't think George Orwell would have ever imagined that you could have so many different kinds of – cracked societies as we see envisioned in young adult literature today.
0: I think that's a really important point to make. One of the things I think is so true with this is that teens really need multiple versions, right? Mm. And seeing it from different perspectives is really what growing up as a teen is all about, right? Because they're they're trying to develop themselves as an adult and yeah. seeing different perspectives and seeing how a different author would tell this similar kind of story in different ways opens up a broader world to them that I don't think just one version of one type of story could ever fulfill.
1: You know, when they fall in love with even a character like Katniss, right, from The Hunger Games, they fall in love with her, and then they go to Ali Condy's Matched series that also has a female protagonist, but who has some very different strengths and proclivities than Katniss, then they get to see, oh, here are two strong females, but they're strong in different ways. And then they go to Divergent, and they get Tris, and they say, oh, it's a wonderful way for young people to have some comfort and familiarity, right? They're familiar with the setting and the idea. And, and we know that that's important to us as readers. We like, we like that familiarity. That's, that's important to us. But the differences— Give us insights and, and unique perspectives. Um, and I, you know, I, I try to avoid looking at young adult literature as, as kind of training wheels or something like that, because I don't think but, but, but in a way, um, it is, in fact, educating them in the way we use story as a culture. And the ways, the the multiple ways in which story does more than just entertain, because we might, when we seek out the comfort of a familiar genre, we might be looking for entertainment. But in there, as you say, when we look at the wrinkles and 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 the unique features that say Veronica Roth has has put into her world of Divergent, we're we're learning too. We're we're growing in our understanding, not just of human beings and the human condition, but in the ways in which literature shows us and and invites us to explore that.
0: Well, and I also think part of it, too, for me, is just this really fundamental sense of the human condition and stories that really connect with that. Because you mentioned the paranormal romance trend. When I look at that, I see Beauty and the Beast, right? Ah, sure. Right? Yeah. And that, that's a story that's been around since the beginning of time, essentially, you know, if you could go that far back. And so there's this sense of, okay, what does that story or that type of story tell us about the human condition in a way that other versions or other kinds of stories can't reach?
1: Well, and I think one of the things that's very important about trends is to recognize that they are a reflection of what our society is preoccupied with because you know we could credit Lois Lowry with the first dystopian novel in, in The Giver, right? but it didn't really take off as a genre. But post 9-11, Hunger Games and Divergent – I mean all of these series books and, and, and not just the books but the movie adaptations, right? I, they reflect I think – Concerns that our society as a whole has about the role of government, the future, uh, what trends do we see today that are worrisome, and we extrapolate them into the future, and oh, this this could become really bad, which is perfectly in line with 1984 and Brave New World and all these more traditional dystopias, right? But but um, I, I don't know that Suzanne Collins would be the hit she she is today in the 90s or the 80s. These trends reflect things about us. And so there I think, yeah, there we can do some really interesting critical thinking about why dystopia now? Why paranormal romance now? What does that say about us? What we're preoccupied with? what we care about today.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I talk to my students a lot about, especially with the genres of fantasy and science fiction. A lot of people in, indeed, yeah. look at those genres and say, oh, it's escapism, escapism or, right. or it's something, you know, I I don't want my teen reading that exclusively. But the reality here, too, is there's some things that can be said in those kinds of genres about the world and about us as human beings that you couldn't say in a realistic context, so I think by looking at it through the lens of the imagination, you actually get more truth sometimes than you do when you see it in realism
1: well and this is this is the great irony of calling story fiction right that it su- or that it suggests that it 's not true and I, and I think it was um, E.L. Doctoro, who said there is no fiction or nonfiction. There's only narrative. There's just story, whether it's based in history and facts that we can verify or whether it's in our imagination, as you say, it's the same truth. And I, and I love that idea. I like that with fantasy. So many times in parent-teacher conferences, my parents of my students would say, oh, all she'll read is Harry Potter, and don't you think that's a problem? Can you give us something else? And I thought, well, <laughs> but think about – and I would say – Think of Lord of the Rings. Think of Tolkien, all the deep, um, the the, the really critical issues he explores in that work. J.K. Rowling does that in Harry Potter too, but in a much more familiar setting to your son or daughter. So I, you know, let's not get too worked up about that. I think you're right. Fantasy and science fiction in fact, I think are some of the places where we can deal with things like prejudice, social class, racism, these these very troublesome issues in far more forthright ways because there's some distance. And that distance can be really really useful to us sometimes.
0: And the distance, I think, helps us see it yeah. more clearly. Because oh, yeah. I know, and I think it does that for teens as well.
1: Oh, without a doubt. And that's why, like you said, I think imagination and story, it's really important.
0: Thank you
2: so much, John. You're very
1: welcome. My pleasure.
2: Rachel Wadham talking with literary expert John Austinson about the current popularity of dystopian books for young adults and the upside of this kind of literature. Next, Rachel visits with Tina Dykes, professor in the BYU School of Education and founder and current chair of the Dolly Gray Children's Literature Award. She talks to Rachel about creating this award that began with her desire to encourage better fictional depictions of young characters with disabilities. Dr. Tina Taylor Dykes has worked in the field of education for 30 years as a special educator, professor, and administrator. Her scholarship has resulted in three books about using children's literature that include characters with special needs. Here's Rachel and Tina Dykes.
0: We welcome Tina to the studio today. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. I am so excited to talk to you today because I think this is such an important thing and it will open our audience's eyes to a very new thing that they've never heard of. So this is the Dolly Gray Award. So tell us a little bit about what... The Dolly Gray Award is okay,
3: well, the official title is the Dolly Gray children's Literature Award, and it was started in the year two thousand um, as a result of a meeting between me and Marianne Prater, who was at the University of Hawaii at the time, and Sharon Kramer, who was at Buffalo and we were at a conference in Hawaii. Could it get any better Perfect after Marianne had um, given a presentation on learning disabilities. In children's literature I had always been interested in this topic not always but ever since my profession um, and Sharon Kramer was also interested and we started talking saying you know what we don't have a lot of great depictions of kids with disabilities in children's literature um, could we do something about it so we got our heads together we started thinking um, about what we could do and we said you know what we can create an award And so we went to the Council for Exceptional Children and the Division on Autism and Developmental Disabilities. We gave them a proposal and said, could you sponsor this, basically an international award, an English-speaking award? And they said, absolutely, we're all for this. So that was back in about 1998, 1999. And then in the year 2000, we gave our first award.
0: That is so amazing, because I think the wonderful thing about awards and giving book awards is that it helps promote the books, but then it also helps people be aware that there are these great books out here. So was that the intent of this award, is to help promote them and to be help people be more aware of them? Or were there other intents that you brought into this?
3: Oh, lots of different intents. I mean, one would be that there were more, and that they were of better quality, and that they would depict reality. So they would have accurate, authentic presentations of disability or any kind of a special need, not just, you know, the negative things, not just the positive, but what is realistic for kids when they go to their library and they pick out a book that they read something about a kid with whom they might want to be a friend, not about someone that they would fear because they seem so different.
0: So how do you define that? I mean, authentic, realistic. You kind of mentioned briefly some of sure. the things you're looking at, but but how do you define that? And particularly as people are looking at some of these books, how would they apply some mm-hmm. of these criteria that you use for the award to help them pick these quality representations?
3: Sure. We have a lot of different criteria that we look at. Um, and with our panel, with our review panel, we have – Uh, School teachers, like special education teachers, we have librarians, we have authors and illustrators, we have parents of children with disabilities, we have individuals with disabilities, developmental disabilities themselves, um, review. So we get a um, multi-person perspective of what is quality literature because a special ed teacher wouldn't know high quality literature, but she might know disability really well. A librarian might not know disability too well, but would know high-quality illustrations and and literary quality. So we've got a list of different things that we look at. Um, One of the first things we look at is um, the personal portrayal of the character with the disability. Are they accurate? Do they show abilities as well as disabilities? Um, And are those consistent with what we know from research? Um, You know, sometimes authors... Not so much nowadays, but back in the past, they would depict kids with real severe disabilities having these extraordinary skills that were kind of incongruent with the diagnosis Um, or lower skills than what you would expect from the diagnosis. So we look at that accuracy. We look, are, are they realistic portrayals? Are they fully developed? Sometimes the kid with a special need is only in there to advance other people's growth. So, so it's, it's a sad inclusion uh, as just this foil, you know, where we're using them for a purpose. And, and we want to see that they grow in ways that are developmentally appropriate as well.
0: So that they're, they really are more dynamic characters, that they have growth and development. And I think there's the corollary, too. So not only is it important that children without disabilities see these depictions, but it's also important for children with disabilities yeah. to see these depictions. So what kind of benefit do children with disabilities derive from seeing these really high-quality books that the, the Dolly Gray Award receives?
3: I'll give you an example from just um, this last weekend. I was with a group of children, and we had one—well, actually, it's a, it's what we call Sib Shops. It's an international organization for siblings of kids with special needs. And sometimes we have siblings who come to those Sib Shops who— Maybe on a broader autistic phenotype, so they have some autistic features, for example, um, we were reading a book, and one of these kids, who kind of seemed like you know he wasn 't diagnosed, but kind of seemed like he had some of those features. We were reading the book, and he he kept saying, "I do that, I do that too hey that 's kind of like me he, so he was saying it 's like my brother who 's diagnosed, but it 's kind of like me. He was getting this realization of You know what? I've got those special, unique things about me, too. So it can bring a lot of self-recognition in a safe place where they don't have to say, oh, I'm so weird, I'm so different. But they can resonate with a character uh, like in Rain Rain. They could resonate with Rose Howard. That She's got some great skills. She's got some things that make her really kind of quirky and fun, but she's got perseverance and love in her unique fashion for her uncle um, that, yeah, you can celebrate being different and it's cool. Yeah, I love yeah. that about this book, Rain, Rain by Ann Martin.
0: Yeah, Rain, Rain is one of my all-time favorite books. I just think it's such a gorgeous book, and and it won the award this past year. Yes, didn't that's it? right. Yeah. So, what are some other titles that have won the award that you think mm. you should you want to mention? I I know narrowing it down is probably I've the biggest got challenge. So many.
3: You know, one that I love. Whenever I, t- I speak to parent groups, um, I read my brother Sammy. I love the illustrations in this book, Um, and I love the message. It starts out with um, a boy. Let me remember his name, or maybe he's unnamed, but he's got a brother named Sammy, and Sammy goes to school. In a special bus. He doesn't get to go on the regular bus like he does. When they go to the park, he flicks his fingers in front of his eyes. He doesn't play with the other kids. When they play in the sandbox, he twirls the sand and watches the sand drip from his fingers. Um, And he finally realizes after his brother knocks down his tower that towers are not just made for building, but they are made for tearing down too. And it's this pivotal point in the book where the brothers perception of his sibling with special needs changes. And says, you know what? He does things differently, but that's okay. And he learns to accept him, even though he did not want a, a special brother. It's beautiful. It's it's chiasmic. It's it's. I, I just love this book.
0: Well, and I love that sense, particularly in that book too, that it's not always easy, right, with the sibling relationship. They they don't make it out in that book to be. Oh yes, I've always loved my brother, and he's always fabulous, and I I'm right. so glad he's special. It's like, uh, this is not always like I need. It to be. And it, sometimes it's challenging, but I still love him and accept him in the way. So I, I think that that really brings back home to that point you were making earlier about there's this balance. It's not about all the good. It's not about all the bad. It's about the the beautiful humanness that this all is. Absolutely. Any other titles you want to mention oh, as goodness. we wind up? You know,
3: one that I liked um, that was a recent award winner was My Brother Charlie by Holly Robinson, Pete, and her daughter, Ryan Elizabeth. Um, What I like about this one, it's the sibling acceptance. But finally, we've got characters who are African-American. So often we have authors who are writing about upper-middle-class Caucasian families with intact families. We, We get that a lot. So this, we've got a multicultural depiction. I would love to see more of this. So children who come from similar backgrounds can resonate with those characters.
0: And I think that that just really underscores this need that we need books about all people in all situations because that is just one of the ways we connect with the world and having these beautiful books are – are just an important part of that. So where can people find out more information about the Dolly Gray Award? Is there a website or other things they can look at?
3: There is. Um, It's dollygrayaward.com, so it's really easy to find. And we've got a list of all of the award-winning books, and soon we'll have a list of all the books that we've ever considered, our review panel. Um, and then all books are available for checkout through our special collection at the Harold B. Lee Library at Brigham Young University.
0: Yes, that is one of the things we've been honored to do is have, have that collection here. And, and I also think particularly if you're not here close, if you see some of these books on your list and you don't have them available in your local library, talk to your librarians. Talk to your school librarians or your public librarians and say, hey, you know, we would really like to have some more of these books in our, in our local collections and uh, make them aware that these are things, particularly if you have a a child with disabilities, that you want to see more of those depictions. Speak up and let the librarians know that this is a great way that they can find high-quality depictions of kids with disabilities. So thank you so much for visiting with us today, Tina. We appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Dr. Tina Dykes, talking about the Dolly Gray Literature Award, which recognizes high-quality children's books that portray characters with developmental disabilities. We finish up the show today with three authors, Wendla Vandranen, Brianna Shields, and Anne M. Martin, who offer some guidance for youth and adults who want to enter the world of writing.
0: If you had a child that came to you and said, I want to be a writer like you someday, what, what would be the tip that you would give them?
4: I would, I would say don't shortcut the reading. Read, read, read. Read across all genres. Read everything you can get your hands on. Read voraciously. And also, if you want to be a writer, you should read about writing. You should apply what your teachers help you with, you know, try to help you with in school. But you should, you should also actively write you shouldn't just think about it, you shouldn't just worry so much about whether you're good at it or not, you should write in massive volume, because the way you get better at anything is by practicing it, and so I, I went to the School of Hard Knocks of Writing, um, because my background is in, in the sciences, and it wasn't until this horrible event happened in my life that I started writing. And so. When I decided I wanted to write a novel, I didn't know anything about it. And so across 10 years of rejection, I wrote books that just, I got rejected, but I kept writing and the volume eventually turned me into a good writer and also reading about what goes into the structure of a novel. So it's not, it's for me, it wasn't something that happened overnight. I, I know that some people find success early, but I think it made me stronger. I think it made me work harder. And um, it, it taking as, as long as it did for me to, to get my first book deal, I think was good in the long run. Although I couldn't see that at the time, it was good in the long run. So in short, sorry, that was a really long answer. But in short, um, read a lot and then work at your, at your craft. Just keep working at it. So my main tip would be to read at least twice as much as you write and read in all kinds of genres and read widely and then try to figure out if you love a book why you love it and if you don't love a book what it is that's not working for you. And I think that more than anything else will help you be a good writer. One is just to become um, a very eclectic reader, to read all kinds of things, to become familiar with fiction, nonfiction, poetry, journalism, fantasy. It's all helpful. And also to, to try to discern if there are styles that you don't like, or um, writing that you don't like, and to try to figure out why. And the other thing is to keep a journal. You don't have to write in it every day, and it's not so much for practice writing as it is for a source of story ideas. So many kids uh, ask me in their letters, or when they meet me, how do you know what to write about? Um, Where do you get your ideas from? And your own journal, the things that have happened to you,
0: um, those are the best story starters. That is an amazing tip. Thank you so much. Three authors, Wendelin Van
2: Dronen, Brianna Shields, and Ann M. Martin. We hope some of what they said will spark some new ideas for your own use as a teacher, parent, writer, or mentor. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting, Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.